Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Wake Up Podcast, where we speak with pioneers of innovation in two of the most interesting ecosystems in the world, Switzerland and Israel. In this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Dr. Eyal Zimlichman from the Shiba Medical Center. Dr. Zimlichman and his team have been in the forefront of the COVID battlefield from the very beginning. Since the recording of this podcast, there have been more developments and the vaccine campaign in Israel has received tremendous media attention all over the globe. But I think you will find this interview is still very relevant. So I hope you'll join us for what I think was a fascinating talk. Enjoy. Hello, Eyal. Hi, Dr. Tzim Lichman. How are you? Hi, Dudu. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, taking, uh, for taking the time. And um, I know that there is probably a lot of people, we got a lot of questions from Switzerland about uh, stories that are doing headlines today, the Israeli vaccination campaign. And uh, I can reassure every one of our listeners that we will get there. But maybe it will be uh, great if you can start by maybe introducing your background Uh, and, and your current work, and just for us to get to know you a bit. Sure, of course. Um, so um, I'm an internal medicine physician in my background. I've done my training at Shiba Medical Center, where I currently work, um, and um, have made the transition towards more healthcare management roles, quality and patient safety roles um, in the past uh, 20 years. Um, spent quite a lot of that time in Boston, working at the uh, network for the Harvard hospitals at uh, Brigham and Women's and Mass General, uh, dealing both on the research side, but also on the uh, strategic side, uh, trying to get the hospitals at, at Harvard to be better prepared towards Obamacare that was coming around the same time. I also spent the, quite an, a lot of time being uh, an advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., uh, again, around uh, Obamacare and came back to Israel to take on a role of uh, chief medical officer, and then also chief innovation officer here at Chiba Medical Center, where I hold both hats uh, for the past um, almost five years. Great. So m- maybe for people that are not that uh, familiar with the Shiba Medical Center and, uh, and also with uh, your innovation role, it's called like now ARC. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about both and, and what are you, the exciting work you're doing there. Of course. So, So first of all, Sheba is uh, the largest hospital in Israel. Uh, also in the Middle East, uh, we have about 2,000 beds all on one campus. It's quite a small uh, city if you come and visit us. Um, and on, on the campus, we have an acute care hospital, a rehabilitation hospital, a children's hospital, and a cancer hospital, uh, all um, integrated, working under one management where I sit. Um, and uh, Sheba also has a very strong footprint, um, not just from... And clinical perspective, uh, seeing, uh, you know, uh, more than about 2 million patient visits a year, but also on a research capacity being uh, the site where a big part of the clinical research in Israel is taking place. We have huge laboratory space. And of course, from, from research comes innovation. And we've been always leading in terms of innovation um, well before I started my, my role as the chief innovation officer. So I can't take credit for everything. Uh, but really, the idea was um, in the past five years to take this to the next level. Um, and in that, we've uh, started uh, ARC, our innovation platform. Um, ARC is not an innovation center. Many people ask me, you know, what is ARC exactly? 
ARC is a platform, it's, it's an ecosystem, a global ecosystem that now has more than 100 um, partners um, as part of ARC, um, leading hospitals around the world, leading uh, academic medical centers and other healthcare organizations, leading uh, industry partners, large corporate companies, and also, of course, the leading startup companies. We have uh, just under 70 startup companies that are part of ARC. And the overall mission of ARC is to redefine healthcare, um, as, especially as we look towards the year 2030. Uh, we're coming from a proactive approach that says, you know, it's one thing to do innovation where we're adding one little solution at a time, but we're looking at the much broader spectrum. We're looking to completely redesign healthcare by the year 2030. And of course, it's not something that one hospital can do alone. And that's why we're looking at this as a coordinated effort of many different international bodies working together towards this uh, common goal, turning our vision of Healthcare 2030 into, into reality. Uh, and I'll just finish by saying that Chiba was uh, lately um, ranked as number nine in the world on the Newsweek uh, uh, ranking list. Of course, we're very proud about that achievement, um, you know, being up there with the leading uh, institutions, uh, some of them from, from Switzerland. So uh, of course we can talk more about the uh, Swiss connection. Mm -hmm. So let's go straight to that. Um, you mentioned before a collaboration of international uh, entities and organizations. So uh, last February, I had uh, the honor to participate. We've um, hosted you at the residency with a, a delegation from Switzerland, from the hospital of, uh, of Zurich. It was a wonderful night. We had a wonderful discussion and I learned a lot about your work. But can you share with us a little bit what's, what was the purpose of this uh, visit and maybe about your work with the hospital of Zurich? Sure, so uh, the Zurich University Hospital is um, one of two medical centers in Europe that are ARC members. So there aren't many European ARC members, um, uh, but, but Zurich is definitely uh, um, you know, a candidate we've identified very early on. Uh, I was visiting there about um, a and a half ago. Um, I was taken by their level of um, innovation by the uh, collaboration between the hospital and the university and also the tech, uh, the tech institute that they have in Zurich. Um, and, um, and after telling them about ARC, we understood uh, right away that, um, you know, Zurich would be a good partner, um, you know, looking uh, very similarly towards the future as we are at Chiba. And that's the first thing we're looking in our partners, you know, how do they see the future? Um, and in that, in that uh, aspect, there was clear match. And we've been working for the past year, of course, like everybody else, mostly around COVID, exchanging notes um, and, uh, and best practices between the hospitals. But we're now about to launch uh, a joint, um, a joint uh, pilot study together with a, a Swiss startup company called uh, um, DocDoc, which is looking to uh, create a digital um, telemedicine platform to better treat uh, patients with chronic obstructive lung disease. Uh, and um, and uh, we're doing this also together with AstraZeneca, so another partner, that's an ARC partner. And, and this is uh, one of the most exciting projects we have coming up um, that are about to launch in 2021. Um, so that's, that's our strong relation with Zurich, but we also have conversations with other hospitals uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. And so I think there will be others that would come into ARC as well. We've had uh, some discussions. And also I'm on the advisory board of uh, Basel University Hospital. Um, and I find that work uh, very exciting 
and also allows me to take another look into the uh, Swiss healthcare system and also learn a bit for myself about uh, some of the things that work very nicely in Switzerland. Super. Um, so I want to um, now maybe talk a little bit about, you mentioned uh, exchanging notes and, and collaboration around the pandemic. And this is a topic which is very interesting because, you know, every person on this planet know that something's happening. We are in the midst of a pandemic. I think everybody's affected in one way or another. And it's always fascinating uh, for me when I'm talking to people that are in the business of trying to innovate, to have visions, to look into the future. So it's, it's always interesting for me to, to see maybe what's, what changed, what kind of opportunities uh, maybe were opened. Uh, of course, there's a lot of damage that's been done and, and people that suffered from that, but it's, it's, it's always fa a fascinating topic for me. Um, and maybe I want to start that with taking you back to the 24th of February. So this was the day where uh, our ambassador, our, the Swiss ambassador in, in Israel, His Excellency Jean-Daniel Ruch and myself visited you at the brand new isolation facility. Can you maybe share with people that have not visited and did not have the opportunity to see the amazing effort that has been done, That what, what was that all about? Of course. So, you know, th this goes back to the early days of COVID-19. And, um, and for us, uh, the first contact with COVID-19 was through some of the passengers on the Diamond Princess cruise ship uh, in Japan. And, you know, we can all recall uh, those days, actors about how the virus is even being transmitted. We, we didn't know at the time, you know, just thinking this was less than a year ago and how much we know today about the virus. But we were, um, we actually volunteered to receive those um, first patients coming from Japan. Of course, they were the first COVID-19 patients in Israel. Um, and uh, again, because of the uncertainty of the virus, there was a lot of uh, concern, you know, um, do we know exactly how it's uh, being transmitted? Are, are the, is the staff safe enough and so on? And so what we've done was we very, very quickly in a matter of days, and if you recall, we also had the hackathon you know, calling um, all uh, startup companies in Israel who think they have a solution that can help us with COVID to come. Uh, we've, launched, we've announced it and, you know, about 48 hours before the actual hackathon. And we have, we had already close to 50 startup companies that have signed up um, uh, just in a very short while uh, because of obviously there was a sense of urgency during those first initial days. Um, and the idea was to try and build this facility in a way that would allow us to um, um, monitor those patients inside, uh, being able to treat them without coming into their rooms if everything is okay. Of course, if their condition deteriorated, of course, the staff had to come in. But if everything was fine, because these patients were you know, either completely non-sick or very mildly sick at the time, um, so there wasn't a need for any sophisticated uh, medical technology, but there was a need to be able to examine the patients, to be able to communicate with the patients, and to be able to monitor the patients in a way that would allow us to provide the best care possible. And this concept of having inside your hospital a facility where you have your patients, but you're not going to touch them, but you're going to follow them from a few feet away, is a concept that is alien to healthcare. Um, you know, we talk about it in, maybe in telemedicine, where the patients are miles away, mm -hmm. but not uh, where the patients are inside your own facility, but still you're trying to avoid contact if, if you can. So we completely shaped that environment 
and you, you came to see it with the ambassador at the time, um, to include um, about 12 different technologies that allow us to have all these things that I mentioned, monitor, uh, communicate, and examine. And that allowed us to care for those patients. Later on, of course, you know, uh, unfortunately, some of them deteriorated and needed more close care, and some of them actually were transferred to the intensive care unit as well. Uh, but during the, the first initial days, what we've built there in that facility was uh, very unique. We couldn't find anything like it in the world. And what we've learned, we shared with our community, we shared with our network, and uh, there's a lot of learnings around that. Mm-hmm. So, so this, this was the 24th of, uh, of February, still no cases in Israel, I remember. There was no, not yet. And you mentioned the hackathon. That was the, the same week on the 27th. I recall those days because this is you know the early days, nobody knows what's going on. And I want to ask you uh, two questions about this uh, hack Corona event. First, do you remember what happened during your speech? So as you're giving the, the, the opening speech for this event, I'm sure you do, but for our listeners. And, and maybe second one, can you tell us more a bit about the, now the experience you have regarding those kinds of events, doing some uh, very tailor-made things regarding Corona, trying to maybe those, what happened with those 12 experiments with those startups that, uh, that you try to uh, implement into your, into your stack. So uh, do you remember what, what happened during your speech? Of course, I, I can't forget that. And we also have it recorded somewhere so we can even uh, go back and relive those moments. But, you know, we got word on the first COVID patient in Israel. Um, and that it was during my... Uh, My opening speech for the hackathon um, which made it of course all very realistic for everybody uh, so I was just informed uh, as you know as I said things are picking up so quickly I was just informed that there is the first corona patient in Israel that uh, contracted the disease here no he didn't contract here oh, he contracted no. it from abroad he was in from isolation and okay. now he's on his way to Sheba Medical Center okay. sorry um, I so you know this was this was really again it's only a, a year ago but it seems like a very long while ago uh, and that hackathon which uh, carried on for a day um, was the first time we started having discussions on on what we're going to need I mean Again, go back to those first, first initial days. We knew very little about what's going to hit us. Um, and uh, we knew innovation would play a key role. Um, we didn't know exactly what we're looking for. Um, you know, everybody was looking for, you know, ventilation solutions because we mm-hmm. all thought we're going to run out of ventilators, which, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a good news that we didn't get to that point. Hopefully, we'll never get there. Um, but that was uh, some of the early uh, urgency that we felt. And of course, other solutions as well. Some of those companies from that first day you mentioned uh, back in late uh, February, we're still working with today. Some of them were in conversations with until today. We've had multiple other events uh, in the past year. We've had a hackathon specifically on uh, artificial intelligence solutions for COVID mm-hmm. uh, with 40 data groups that came up, 15 made it to the finals and one group uh, won first place. Uh, by the way, it's a group from Intel Uh, and the first price was to have their algorithm being implemented into our electronic systems so they have an opportunity to save patients because at the end of the day, those 40 data groups that came were not in it for the money. They came in for the opportunity to do some good and help in treating patients. And that was the, mm-hmm. the first price. And then later on, we had some issues with how do we use the protection gear for the staff inside the operating room because it wasn't very easy 
for the, the staff in the, during the operations to, you know, to have all this uh, heavy equipment. Um, and so we needed something that is lighter and still provides good protection. And so we held another hackathon um, on protection gear uh, specifically. Um, and again, we've had companies even from outside of Israel apply, uh, seeing it on, on um, LinkedIn and so on. And, and uh, we had uh, something like 14 companies with great solutions. We chose the first, uh, the winner, and we're still working with the winner to, uh, to make sure that it's a, a good uh, um, you know, uh, fit to, to our needs. Um, so these types of events, um, you know, we call them hackathons. During times of emergency, they're even more important than yeah, during regular times. Because again, you want to be able, you're capturing the best that there is to offer. You want to be able to work fast. And hackathons are about speed. You know, they're either 24, 48 hours, quickly come up with solutions. Everybody's focusing towards one goal. Uh, and, and we found that a very useful tool for, for this type of events. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and you, you mentioned also before, in, uh, search, search, search of uh, urgency. The sense of urgency. Um, so, so I'm interested about that, and maybe sense of urgency, and um, and operating maybe under stress. So, so when I first came to the isolation cape, I, I must tell you that that was a stressful, uh, maybe exciting, maybe interesting, but it was a stressful event. You know, we had area A, B, C. You had restrictions, and 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 we trusted you, and you uh, showed us the way, and it was it was a very it was a fascinating moment. Um, and the reason I reached you as early was because I'm part of a network, the Swiss Next Network. So we have a scientific advisor, innovation advisor all over the globe. And um, I started to have some conversation and having some alarming signs from my friends, mostly from Asia. This is where it came from. So phone calls at night with uh, our my Japanese colleagues, uh, Singapore, South, Africa, uh, South Korea, mostly um, China and there was some alarming signs. And um, I must say that w in, during all of our interaction, I must uh, share with you now that uh, those were calming uh, experience because there was so much uncertainty. And I must tell you that you projected a lot of confidence and the sense of uh, it will be okay. I don't know where did you get it for, but uh, I'm interested about, we need this sense of urgency for innovation, especially now. And it's, there were stressful moments and there are still stressful moments. So how, you, how do you personally deal with that? How, how your team is dealing with that? The Shiba Medical Center, we know that we are now in a period where we're in a third lockdown. Um, those are not quiet and peaceful time still 11 months into that. So how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, it's about, um, you know, that sense of urgency and sense of purpose. You know, we... We are here to do, um, you know, to do something. We we want to make an impact, uh, and th this is the, you know, the best times to to try and and have a major impact. You know, we wish we weren't in this situation, but uh, um, you know, much of of the innovation came in in times of emergency. If you look back into history, um, you know, many of the things that uh, you know came around during the world wars, um, many inventions, because there was huge need, you know, much of what we know about air travel um, really, um, you know, um, advanced very quickly during World War II uh, to having airplanes that are able to carry huge amounts of, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, you know, of material and so on. So, so I think in that regard, being able to, uh, 
to have that sense of urgency and sense of purpose together um, and coming up with the innovation that is needed. You know, one of the first things that we've done, I find through my experience, also personal experience, also in the army, that during times of emergency, people tend to um, uh, overlook, um, you know, the fact that this is time of emergency. We tend to sort of put it on the side and continue our routines. It takes a while before we stop our routines and say something else is going on. This is, these are not the usual times. That's mm -hmm. the number one problem of large organizations going through emergency. It takes us a long time to understand and acknowledge we are in an emergency time. Mm -hmm. And what we've done at ARC during the first lockdown, um, you know, there was that, uh, this, uh, that decision that needed to be made at the hospital level, which staff members are critical and need to continue to come home to work every day and which staff members are not as critical and can work from home or can even take a leave of absence. And I remember my thinking at the same, on the same day, what about my innovation team? Uh, because I also am in charge of the medicine. So of course my medical team had to be here, all hands on deck, but what about my innovation team? Mm -hmm. Can I tell them, listen, work from home or go on a leave of absence or, um, or, or, or are they part of this emergency? And it took me about um, seven minutes to make that decision that they are a critical part of uh, you know, the solution to this problem that we have. Because without innovation, it'll be very, very difficult to overcome COVID. Um, and once we made that decision, we called it COVID-19 battle mode, ARC COVID-19 battle mode. To signify one thing, these are not regular times. We should put everything else we were dealing with to the side and direct 100% of our efforts to fight finding solutions for COVID. Not just in terms of vaccine or a new uh, drug, which everybody was hoping to, but also other types of solutions, whether it's protective gear, whether it's AI applications, whether it's uh, a ventilator, everything else that we could bring into the puzzle to help us deal with the crisis at hand. And so the innovation team was front and center in the Shiba efforts to fight the pandemic. They were shoulder to shoulder with the clinical teams. They were putting on protective gear and going inside to actually see the problems you know, in their eyes and make sure that we're, you know, we identify the problems and then we work on solving them. Um, and uh, that COVID-19 um, battle mode be became a sort of battle cry, if you might, um, that, uh, produced huge amount of innovation in a very short while. Uh, I also call it the perfect storm. If you're familiar with the term where everything comes together in one single point in time. Uh, and ARC meets COVID-19 was this uh, ability to show that once you have a structured innovation program, you're able to uh, produce the innovation that is needed in times of emergency very quickly through the structured approach that we've developed. Yeah, and I must say that uh, watching this um, room where you had all of those screen like a Big Brother room put up in 48 hours was extremely impressive and a demonstration of, of what you can do with this sense of urgency and sense of purpose now, I take right. it. Um, let's talk vaccination because uh, there is something remarkable happening, uh, which is worth... I'm, I'm, uh, I got so many questions about that. And maybe I will start with the headline that I've just Googled, you know, and you, you can find it everywhere, but that's from Bloomberg. Uh, it says, 
Israel's COVID vaccine rollout is the fastest in the world. So can you give us a little bit of the number behind this headline and what's going on? Because it's so fast. I've just seen the number for today. Uh, it's uh, different from, from before this weekend. Where are we standing? Why is, why is everybody talking about the, the, this vaccination rollout being a, a remarkable event? Well, first of all, in terms of numbers, you know, the numbers are really um, um, impressive, I have to say, uh, when you think about the short while of time that we've uh, started vaccinating, we already have more than 80% of population over 60 vaccinated and about 40% of the entire population vaccinated. Um, you know, the um, other countries in Europe and in the US are, of course, uh, you know, around the 5%, 2%. So, so it's a very big difference. Um, why is that so? I think, you know, there are two parts to it, and um, I'll, I'll focus on the first part of it first, if, if, if it's okay with you. Yes. Two parts are, first are the supply of vaccines. So, you know, we have the supply of vaccines. I'll put that to the side for a second. We can revisit it. But the second side is the operational side. And that, I think, has three explanations uh, that contribute to the success. One is you know what we've said before it's the sense of urgency and the sense of purpose because once you know we've realized in israel that the solution to covid 19 will go through the vac vaccinations it's not about it's not going to go away it's not going to go away in the summer like we hoped last summer it's not going to mutate uh, and become uh, a, a, a less harmful uh, version of the virus um, it's here to stay so the only way out is vaccination. And we've made a decision on a national level that vaccination it is. And now we're doing vaccination from, from um, very early on, almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and the whole country is focused on that. So the urgency and sense of purpose, which I haven't seen in other countries, mm -hmm. uh, very, you know, at least not initially, maybe now we're starting to see more of that. But during the initial days, it was very uh, um, you know, it was very apparent that there's a difference of alignment between Israel and some of the other countries that uh, I was following in terms of, okay, we have to do it. This is what we're doing. We're focusing on it right now, like the battle mode that I've described before. So this is the first factor. The second factor is the infrastructure of healthcare in Israel, which is built on four very strong HMOs, uh, that care for 100% of residents. And they have strong infrastructure in the community. And Israel is well known for its community healthcare infrastructure, um, which in times of emergency like this one comes in very handy. Because if you think about the government of Israel, the Ministry of Health has only to work with four HMOs, that's it. You know, how do I divide the vaccinations between the four? And mm -hmm. then I need to set the uh, criteria to the age group or the risk group that we're going to vaccinate first. That's the mm -hmm. only thing the ministry had to do. Everything else was handled by the HMOs and they're very good at doing this because they're doing it all the time. You know, they're providing medications to people. They're providing vaccinations to people. They have a very strong organizational infrastructure and logistic infrastructure to allow them to do it. And I think that's the second factor. And the third factor, um, is, um, you know, the fact that Israel is very strong in terms of data, because we have robust data on a population level on 100% of residents in Israel. Um, 
we can know very easily about which people are higher risk because of comorbid conditions and so on. Um, and, uh, and we can follow the data very easily. So uh, we get these updates almost on a minute by minute basis on who has been vaccinated, what percentage, what percent of what age group and so on. And we're able to send the text message to somebody that has a comorbid condition and say, come in tomorrow to this and that address to get your vaccine. So this level of, um, of organization is something that is needed to run a project like this one. Mm-hmm. And if I understand right, this level uh, of, of, let's say, the data structure behind what, what you say is remarkable. And, uh, I, and I want to quote you just one more thing about it. I saw, I've seen it yesterday that there was a, a research done by Clalit Health Fund that showed that among 200,000 people aged 60 and over, both inoculated and not, there was a 33 reduction in the spread of the virus 14 days after the first from the two required doses. So, and this is something now which is published and we don't have to go into the details, but um, how does it fit now things that we're starting to see publication? And, and maybe you can do a little bit of, uh, to, to give us a little bit about what's the difference between uh, what we've seen going out now And the clinical trials, as, uh, I know it's not the same, but um, how does this level of maturity of the data structure of those HMOs and hospitals are now um, interacting with Pfizer and playing a role on the international level of, of uh, publication in the academic sector and in, in the health uh, sector? Can you share with us a little bit about what's going on here? Sure. So, you know, in many ways, Israel has become uh, this uh, living lab now for... Um, you know, the impact of the vaccine, because if you think about this, this is the first time in human history that we're confronted with this type of issue, you know, that we have a pandemic and that there was a vaccine developed during the pandemic to answer for the pandemic. You know, it's never happened before. Um, and our ability to study it will be something that will fuel uh, academies for decades in the future. You know, going back to these days, And reflecting and learning everything that we can. And so what happens on the country level when you start vaccinating? And Israel has become this, uh, you know, this again, this living lab because, um, you know, it has this unique uh, um, ability to uh, operate such a huge vaccine um, program in a, in a short while and to get to 40% within, um, you know, less than a month. Um, So everybody's looking to see when are we going to start seeing the difference? You know, it's a great question. Um, it, again, this is the first time ever that we're seeing this happen. So are we, what are we going to see first? Are we going to see total numbers go down? Are we going to see only severe cases go down? Are we going to see mortalities go down? What follows what and in what order? And so this is now where everybody's trying to pull up data according to what everybody has available to try and come up with some answers to those questions. So I've seen already data from the four HMOs. It started with Clalit, the largest mm-hmm. one, but there's already data from all four um, that shows exactly what you're saying, that you know, if you take only patients vaccinated, then you can see that less and less and less of them contract the disease, um, which is a first indication that something is working. Mm-hmm. We've had some other trials looking at uh, antibody levels. We've done a trial here at Chiba on you know, thousands, about 6,000 um, uh, healthcare workers that were vaccinated at Chiba following their antibody level, showing that about two weeks after the first vaccine, about 50% of them had a, lo- a high enough level, but you know, four weeks or one week after the second vaccine, 
it went up to 98%. Uh, so this is real world evidence. You know, we had mm -hmm. clinical trials done by Pfizer and Moderna and some of the other companies, but this is real world evidence. Mm -hmm. What you know, impact will this have on the trajectory of the pandemic? What, when are we going to see things drop down? How is that going to affect us? And how is that going to affect the opening of the economy and so on? This is the case study where un that is unfolding before our eyes right now. And we're, you know, during these very exciting times, I wish we had, we could just keep it all together. But uh, of course, there's much to learn and much to share. And these are very, very exciting days in that regard. Mm -hmm. And what I was finding fascinating about it, that I'm reading a publication about 200,000 cases, and it's 400,000 because they compared two populations. And then I looked at the clinical trial and saw that the clinical trial third phase was done on 60,000 people. Uh, so um, are we seeing, as you said, something uh, new here in terms of it's not a clinical trial. Can you maybe just give us for people like, like me that are not really can, can have the difference between this publication, which is not a clinical trial and the clinical trial and, and what's going on here in terms of the learning um, in, in those um, use cases, like you said, that, that are appearing. Right. I mean, I mean, the pharma companies, you know, when they develop a vaccine, they need to go through very strict protocols, you know, the FDA um, and the CE and other uh, you know, organizations will scrutinize everything that you do. And this, there are very strict protocols. So these are the trials, the phase one, phase two, phase three trials that, um, you know, there are very, again, very strict regulations. Um, but, you know, they give you information on a patient level. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest difference. They give you information on a patient level for a specific patients, what kind of, uh, you know, impact uh, on antibodies, on other factors, uh, side effects, and so on. Um, whether the patient got sick or didn't get sick, you know, how severe was his condition and so on. What we're looking in Israel right now is on research done on a population level. It's not on a patient level. So uh, it, it, it comes to serve a very different purpose. It comes to serve how populations react to a, vaccine, a mass vaccination program like we're seeing. And this is the big difference. So the data that will be shared um, with the world, with you know, either, even Pfizer, it's not a big secret, will not be on a patient level. And that's okay. the biggest difference. That's why you don't need to have the entire population of Israel sign informed consents. This mm -hmm. is a population level study that comes to say, look at the population level numbers. This is how they're changing across time. And this is the impact on economy, culture, and so on and so on, as we're going to be seeing in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we, we said so many times this uh, word innovation during this interview, and that sometimes it's like buzzword, but I think that listening to you, and if you put those things in context, it comes back to learning and being able to learn fast and share. And it sounds like what's happening here is learning on a large scale with everything is so quick. I get those updates from Twitter today and it's it's really, you have the, the ability to stay updated and see what's happening and what's going on. So um, it seems that there's really a lot of learning happening. And I, I, I hope that uh, we will continue to learn and have less hospitalization and deaths and that we are uh, seeing the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Uh, listening to all of the work that you are doing gives a lot of hope and uh, and it's fascinating. And it's uh, thank you for, for, for the visits, for the exchange, for this interview. And 
uh, before I wrap it up, may maybe I'll, I'll let you, if you want to just say uh, something to the audience that is listening to us, maybe entrepreneurs or other organization, uh, if you have any message or maybe how can they contact you if there's something interesting that they heard in this interview regarding art, Shiva Medical Centers and your effort, uh, how can we reach you? Or I'll give you the, the last notes if you want to uh, share something that I didn't ask. Sure, I'll just uh, sort of wrap up by saying that, um, you know, I think um, maybe as you started, um, uh, you know, there is the half full glass from COVID. So it might, you know, saying half is maybe overrated. Maybe we'll agree on a quarter full glass. Um, and uh, also, you know, I call it the silver linings in, in, um, in COVID. You know, what are we going to gain out of this? I think, um, you know, looking down uh, from the perspective of history, uh, of course, there'll be a lot of good that comes out of this pandemic, out of this tragedy. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to see it today because we're, you know, in the middle of it and we're seeing the pain and the tragedies that are happening. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to see how can we maximize and come up with as, as much learnings and as much innovation that will, you know, reshape how, you know, healthcare um, and even broader than that. So we, we see, you know, what happened with COVID as an accelerator to the changes we need to be seeing in the healthcare sector. Um, you know, I, I typically say that, um, you know, it's be, it, we're, we're pushed ahead in time about five years in terms of the um, um, innovation and the, the capacity to change or openness to change. Uh, telemedicine is, is one example, but there mm -hmm. are others as well. Uh, the role of the industry, the role of pharma companies, you know, pharma companies came to the rescue. You know, they rescued humankind in many ways. Um, so, you know, we need to work in an open innovation environment with other players like pharma companies. So there are a lot of learnings that can be picked up from the events we're going through right now. And, and um, I think you know, healthcare is going to be a very, very exciting sector in the next 10 years, as we're going to see true and significant transformations happen. And, um, you know, all the young people out there uh, that are starting their, their, you know, their career path and are thinking about healthcare, I think this is where a lot of exciting, exciting things are going to happen. So mm -hmm. uh, we need the best people, innovative people, people that come from other industries that, uh, you know, can come in and help us with some of the issues that we have in healthcare. Um, and I think that's my my last message here to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to push healthcare forward so that we gain a lot from what we've went through, um, even through even through the hard times. Strong words. I agree. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best um, way that they can contact your team at ARC or how can they reach you, your team? The best way is LinkedIn, uh, either uh, contact me or contact ARC. We have the ARC uh, account on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, there's always, always a lot of stories on LinkedIn on the activities we're doing. So there's an ability for others to join on the hackathons and other, uh, other uh, activities that we have. Perfect. So we will put uh, that in the description. And uh, with that, I want to thank you. And also on behalf of the embassy for being a good friend and for this uh, long term, long journey and the collaboration and uh, the time you spent and for the confidence uh, you gave us also during those really times that we didn't know what's going to happen. Thank you and uh, looking forward for our next exchange. And thank you for this interview. Thank you very much. And I look forward to our work uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wake Up Podcast. I am David Bigelizen, Innovation Advisor at the Embassy of Switzerland in Israel. And Wake Up is a cultural, society, science, and innovation project of the Swiss Embassy. We want to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to us on our website, Facebook, or email. And you can reach out directly to me at David Bigelizen on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening.